you to open your Bibles now, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. And we're privileged this morning to come back again to our study of God's Word in the Gospel of Matthew. And for several weeks, we've been looking at these opening verses of the 10th chapter, in which we're talking about the calling of the 12 apostles to a very special mission that God had given them of preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. And the apostles were indeed special men. Uh, these opening verses tell us how Jesus called them and gave them supernatural powers to heal people of sicknesses and to cast out demons. The fact that there were only 12 of them, the fact that they were the first ones to be chosen, and the fact that they are the foundation of the church, the fact that they could do many of the same miracles that Jesus did, has caused many people to think that we should idolize them. Now, we don't have any idea what any of these men look like. We don't have any portraits of them any more than we have pictures of Jesus. Uh, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was a very common man. Uh, his physical appearance was really nothing very special. Isaiah wrote this about him. He said, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And the tender plant there and the root out of dry ground refers to a, a scrubby desert bush rather than a stately tall tree like a redwood. And there's some debate about whether this verse refers to the physical appearance of Jesus or whether it's speaking about the humility of his birth and the poverty of his life. And perhaps uh, Isaiah had in mind that no one would be attracted to Jesus because of his social status. But there are others that see in this a physical description that God did not want people to be drawn to him because he was attractive. Uh, God wanted true followers that believed the message so that Jesus would not be like a famous actor. He wouldn't be like a rock star. His picture was not going to grace the cover of People magazine. But that lack of information that we have about Jesus' appearance has never stopped people from imagining what he looked like. And so we have pictures that have been painted of Jesus. Uh, the Renaissance period especially has given us many portraits, and what that's done has it's put an indelible picture in our minds of what Jesus must have looked like. And so people think, well, this must be Jesus when they see those portraits. If you hang one of them on a wall in your house, somebody's not going to come by and say, well, who is that? Is that your dad? Who, who is that picture? They're not going to ask that because we have this imprinted into our mind that that is what Jesus must have looked like. But the physical appearance is so unnecessary that God has not really given us any pictures of Jesus. And the same can be true, uh, said to be true of the, of the uh, apostles. Uh, this pointed lack of information about how they looked and what their physical appearance was like was so that we're not to be attracted to them, so that we don't make images of them. And this is what's happened to the apostles as well as Jesus. There are glass uh, portraits of them, stained glass pictures. There are statues of them when nobody has any real idea of what they actually look like. Now, we don't have any description of Jesus except what's given in the book of Isaiah, if, in fact, that's a physical description. The only other thing that we know about him is that he had a beard, and they plucked that out before he was crucified. And that's the extent of it. We don't have any information about it. Now, there's an interesting story about a man who painted a picture of the Last Supper. 
And he asked a friend to, to look at this and to give his opinion of it. And so the man looked over it very carefully, and he said, the cups that you painted, the cups that you painted on the table, they are truly magnificent. And the artist was very distraught by that, and so he quickly took a brush, and he painted over every cup that was in the picture. And he said, I failed with this portrait, because all that I ever wanted you to see was Jesus. And in a real sense, that's the story of the apostles' lives. Uh, We don't have anything here that tells us that they were interested in sitting for portraits. They weren't interested in having people make statues of them. Their job was simply to tell people about Christ. And the more unnoticed that they went, the better that they liked it. They had the same attitude that John the Baptist had, had, that he must increase and I must decrease. Now, if you look at our text this morning, we see once again their calling. Matthew chapter 10. Let's, let's stand once more time and, as we read God's Word and We'll read these same scriptures that we've looked at several times in these past few weeks. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, bless the reading of your word today. Uh, Watch over us, Lord, as we open up the scriptures and explain your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In your outline today you'll see that we've already covered eight of the 12 men that are in this list. These are the first messengers. And we've noted about them as we've looked at each of their lives that they were faulty men. They were far from perfect. And Jesus didn't choose them because they were fine physical specimens. We've already talked about we have no idea of their appearance. When God chose Saul to be the leader of Israel, the first king of Israel, there's a description of him that says that he stood head and shoulders among the rest of the people, head and shoulders above them. We read a description about David where it says that he, was a, he had a, a very fair complexion, that he was a handsome man. But these men were not chosen for anything other than what Christ could make of them. And so we've discussed eight of them And I'll just have to refer you to the previous messages for all the details that I've given. So let me just list their names for you again and the descriptions that we've already given to each. Uh, First was Peter. He is the natural-born leader. Andrew, who always brings people to Jesus. James, the wildly passionate apostle. John, the apostle of love. Philip, the calculating apostle. Bartholomew, the student of Scripture, Matthew, the forgiven traitor, and Thomas, the apostle that never gets a fair shake. And whenever we see these disciples listed together, we always see them in three groups of four. The first four are always grouped together, the second four are always grouped together, and the last four are always grouped together. Most of them we don't know very much about. Peter, we have uh, quite a bit of information about him, a little bit about John. 
But all the rest of these men are limited to one, two, maybe three references in Scripture, and we have to draw our conclusions from those. And when we get to this last group, we don't hardly know anything about them at all but their names. Now, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, numbers 9, 10, and 11 in this list are very obscure. So how are we able to make a message about them? What are we going to say about it? And I'm glad you asked the question, because I thought the same thing. What are we going to say about somebody who who really is not even hardly mentioned in the Scriptures at all? Well, we have to start by stating the obvious. They're called by Jesus. Every one of them were given the same commission that that the, the these last three had the same commission that the first eight had. They all had Peter's commission. They all had John's commission. They were all preachers of the gospel. All of them could heal. All of them could cast out demons. And all of them had that very same promise that was given to the rest that in the kingdom they would sit and judge uh, the tribes of Israel. We also know that these men are the bedrock of the church. They'll have their names in the foundation walls of the New Jerusalem. And so they're no different in, in that respect to the others that we've talked about. And it, it's probably important to note about them that they were cups that are just brushed out of the picture in order that we might see Christ. And I think probably the most important thing that we can learn about any of them, and, and it's true for the whole group of the apostles, the most important thing is that of all of the people that Jesus met, of all that he interacted with, of all that he taught, these are the ones that stuck with him. These are the ones that went through right to the very end and were there with him and, and, and preached the gospel after he was gone. They were committed to him. Now, often they did fail. There were holes in their understanding. Lots of times they didn't know exactly what Jesus was talking about. But when Jesus died and when he arose from the grave and when he ascended back into heaven, these were the men that were left standing to preach the gospel of Christ. And we know that's true. Paul talked about them later. He continued to call them the apostles of the church. When John wrote the letter of 1 John near the end of the first century, he made reference to all of the apostles as a group. And so he didn't say something like, well, you really need to listen to what Peter said, and, and you really need to listen to Andrew and Philip. But forget about those scoundrels like Thaddeus and Simon Zelotes because they never stayed true to the gospel of Christ. They left the faith. We don't read that about them. There's nothing like that. They all hung in there. And we have the gospel today because of these men. Now, just to show you that that's true, I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 6. And we'll look at some scripture here. Uh, Much of what Jesus taught was very hard for people to stomach. In fact, the stomach was about the only reason that many people were following him. Jesus would feed thousands of people. He would heal grandma and grandpa and children and heal the blind and the crippled. And they kept following him because he could do things for them, physical things for them nobody else could do. But when Jesus began to teach the hard doctrines, when he began to really lay down the truth of God's word, then it was very hard for them to swallow. And many of the people choked on his doctrine. And that's the case that we find here in John chapter 6. Let's just pick out some verses here to sort of give you a sense of the problem. In verse number 35, it says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, 
and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, if you go down to verse number 41, it says, Then the Jews murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. In verse 47, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And verse 52 says, The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then things got harder. Verse number 53, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. That was a very difficult saying. In fact, people today still have no idea what Jesus meant by this. It was a hard saying. Roman Catholics today think that this means that you have to observe the Mass, that you have to drink Christ's blood, that you have to eat his flesh. And their understanding of it's really no better than the Jews because the Jews thought, well, what's he saying to us? We've got to take a chunk out of his arm? We have to eat his, eat his actual flesh? We have to drink his blood? They were confused. It was hard. And the teaching was so difficult that the Scripture says in verse number 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Which disciples? Who's the writer? Who's John talking about? Well, it's not the twelve. Because we look at verse number 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now remember, Peter is the spokesman. Peter's the leader of the group, and so he speaks for the entire group. And he says to Jesus, we're not going anywhere. You are the one who has the words of eternal life. We're sure that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And so all of them, all 12 of them, Except Judas Iscariot. Now, he's following at this point. Jesus already knew about him, but they were all committed to following Jesus. He chose them for the mission. He was sure that they would carry it out. And so there are no final failures. Number 11 is just as faithful to the message of Christ as number 1. Now, before I go on from that, I do want to point out that there are many people today that say that they are Christians, but they are uninterested in the hard sayings of Christ. They wear a cross around their neck, and they put a fish on the car, and they follow Jesus just as long as he fits their lifestyle. As long as Jesus is sitting in the co-pilot seat. And you've seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Well, they're very happy with that. And whenever they take a, a wrong turn, when Jesus says to them, you need to obey my traffic laws, and you need to do what I say, here's what you need to do with your life, here's what you need to stop doing, here's what's wrong with you, here's what you need to believe, here's what you need to stop believing, that's when they take Jesus in the seatbelt and they wrap the thing around his neck and try to choke him to death. 
They don't want to hear the hard sayings of Christ. Whenever it gets convicting, people don't want that, and so they want to keep on driving in the direction that they want to go. Stick a sock in Jesus' mouth. Because you listen to the kind of things that Jesus said. He preached long and hard about hell. He preached about repentance. He preached about obedience to God's commandments. And he said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and you've got to hit that rough, rocky road. This is not an easy thing that you're going to do to follow me. But they don't like that. They don't like that picture of Jesus. His, his way is very hard to follow. And so what they do is they pick up their paintbrush and they paint a picture of Jesus like they want him to look like. Their picture of Jesus is what they think that he is and he's nothing like the Jesus that we have in the Bible. They still don't have any idea what Jesus looks like. Now there we have an introduction to three more disciples. We don't know anything about them but just barely their names. But we do know this, they were committed to Jesus. They stuck with him. Through all the hard stuff, through all the tough teachings, they stuck with him. And they kept that mission alive when Jesus went back to heaven. So number nine in our list of the apostles is James, the son of Alphaeus. The description that I've given him is little as much when God is in it. He said, well, preacher, what are you going to say about James, the son of Alphaeus? Well, here's, here we go. He wrote nothing. Not a word that he said is in the New Testament. Never spoke a word that's written down. There are no stories about him. The only thing that you'll find in Scripture about this man is his name. He wasn't James the brother of John. That was James the son of thunder. And he was so loud and hit so hard that Herod couldn't take it anymore, so he took his head off with a sword. He's not the James that wrote the book of James. That was James the Lord's brother who also became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He does have another name in the scripture. In Mark 15, 40, he's called James the Less. And that description's kind of interesting because we could call him James the Micro. Because the Greek word there is the same, the same one that underlies that is the same one from which we get micro and microscopic. So he was distinguished from Big James. They called him James the Less. Now, Big James, that's the loud, booming disciple, James the son of Zebedee. Perhaps they called him James the Less because he was younger than Big James. But there are people that suggest that he's called this because he was shorter than Big James. Now, folks, what that shows you is that good things come in small packages. You don't have to be six foot tall which seems to me in Jorge to be a waste of good space for nothing. But you don't have to be that tall. You just be well-proportioned like me and Jorge. You get over 5'8", you don't need to be any taller than that. And, and, and more importantly, though, folks, what you need to be is not necessarily a Peter or a John. You, just have to have, you don't have to have a lot of influence to do something for God. It doesn't require that you be one of those other types of disciples. You can work in your own sphere that God has given you. And maybe you're less, maybe you're little, maybe you don't have as much, maybe you are not as outgoing, but you can still be used of God. Did you know that the average size of churches in America is less than 100 people? And so that means that there are a lot of good pastors that are laboring in obscurity. Nobody's ever going to hear about them. Sermons aren't printed everywhere. And you may think that uh, Berean's a small church and so we don't really count very much. We can't do very much for God. But small churches are the backbone of Christianity. All across this country, the small churches are the backbone. 
And I hate to say this, and I know it's not true in all cases, but there are many of the mega churches that get that way because they make a lot of compromises. They have to accommodate a lot of people. They have to, they bring in a lot of people with a lot of different ideas that think differently. And so what they end up doing is watering down the gospel. They won't preach the hard stuff. They won't talk about hell. They don't believe in doctrinal separation. It's not always true, but it's true much of the time. Well, James, the son of Alphaeus, was right there with the other apostles. There's nobody that wrote down his sermons. None of them has ever been turned into a book. There's no iPhone app for James the Less. He has no web page, nothing in Scripture about him. When he comes into the picture, he's someone that's out of focus. But the Bible tells us that when he comes into the kingdom, James is going to be sitting there among the thrones, judging in the kingdom. You know what that tells us? The time for exaltation is not in this life. For James, the time to be lifted up was not in this life. For now, we need to be pointing to Christ. We don't need to exalt ourselves. You know, there's, there's a ministry that sends mail to my office at least two or three times a week. And on just about every letter, on every brochure, on every announcement, you'll find this preacher's face plastered on every piece of material that I get. I even received an invitation a few weeks ago that said, if you get your name in early enough, then you can come and you can have lunch with this pastor. And I I thought about that. I, I thought about the 11 apostles in heaven shaking their heads at that and saying, what has this become? I mean, is Christianity, has the church become a place for celebrities? Big name preachers, is that what we really need? Do we need people that outshine Christ? I don't think that we do. And you put some of those guys in that mixture with these apostles and they would be the cups that outshine the Lord. But not this James, not him. He gets lost in the obscurity of thousands of nameless martyrs that died for Jesus Christ. Most of them were never named. And we don't know about this one except that the Lord chose him, that he stood with the Lord. He was right there when there were many other people that went back, that turned back when the going got rough. That's James the Less. Now we also have number 10 here I want to talk to you about today is Levius. And he is the courageous apostle. And I have to confess to you that we can only call him Levius the courageous apostle because his name means courageous. Levius is a, is a name that comes from a Hebrew word that's related to the heart. And often it meant one who was courageous. He's also known as Thaddeus. That's a word that relates to the breast, and it's like being the youngest to leave the mother's breast. So he was the baby of the family. So they surnamed him Thaddeus. But we also find a third name for him in the Scripture, and this is in Luke chapter 6, verse 16, and also in Acts 1.13, and there he's called Judas. Judas was a very common name. It means Jehovah leads. And so he was called Thaddeus, probably because he's the baby of the family. He was nicknamed Levius because maybe the other disciples thought that he was a very courageous person. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 14. And this is the only place in Scripture where we find anything at all that's spoken by Levius. Now, we've been in John 14 several times in the past few weeks because this is part of the upper room discourse. Uh, This is just before Jesus went to the cross and he gathered his disciples there as his last teaching opportunity. And so there were many subjects that were covered in the upper room and you would expect questions from the disciples. 
And Levi has got to ask his. So we're kind of breaking into the teaching here in, in chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus said, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, Not Iscariot. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Now there is Levius Thaddeus. He's the one who asked this question. He's also known as Judas. And he's distinguished from the other Judas by John saying here, this was not Judas Iscariot that asked this question. Now we notice the question that he asked, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And that is really a loaded question. It has a lot of different interpretations, possibility of interpretation. And the first that we would notice about it is that Lebius was just like all the other apostles and that he had the wrong understanding of the timing of the kingdom. Now, if you remember, James and John were already jockeying for position. They wanted to sit right next to Jesus' throne. They wanted to have their throne on either side of Jesus. And that's because they thought that the kingdom is right now upon us. Jesus is ready to begin his kingdom upon the earth. The other disciples squabbled about it as well. And they wondered, which one of us is going to be greatest in the kingdom? And that question, or this question, reflects that same kind of misunderstanding. Levius, Thaddeus, Judas here has the wrong understanding of the kingdom of Christ. And so we could phrase it this way. Lord, you're going to have a worldwide kingdom. And we're the only ones that are going to know about it? How are you going to do that? How are you going to show it to us and not to everybody? Oh, it didn't make any sense to him that that Jesus would rule the world and that he was going to sit on David's throne and he would be in Jerusalem ruling everyone. And the only ones that would know about it were these 12 men. And then you can look at it in another way. He, He was very perplexed and he was thinking, why us? Why of out of all of all the people that could have been chosen, why us? We're nobodies. And in the beginning, it must have looked that way to all the apostles. And they thought, we can't do this. Why would he choose us? Somebody who's going to bring a kingdom in the world? Somebody who's going to be a king and let people rule with him? It can't be people like us. This has to be a scam. It's sort of like if Bill Gates were to call me up. And he said, hey, Mark, I'd like you to become CEO of Microsoft. Now, this is a much bigger scale than that. But who am I? Who quali- what qualifies me to be a CEO at Microsoft? And for your information, if he calls, I'm taking the job. But, but I, I don't think he's going to. Jesus said to these disciples, I want you guys to rule in my kingdom, a worldwide kingdom. Well, I know Bill Gates is not going to call me. And so if somebody calls and says, hey, this is Bill Gates, and I'd like you to become the CEO, I say, somebody's pulling my leg here. This is a scam. And so you can look at it like that. And it really shows how much these men must have believed in Jesus because this goes beyond conventional wisdom. It goes beyond anything that they'd been taught. Now, they had to agree that everything that they had previously learned, what they knew about the scriptures, is all wrong. Jesus overturned it all. And they were to believe that this guy from this ghetto city of Nazareth is going to be the king of the world. And it's just a testament to how much that God had to change their hearts because we could never believe a wild story like that either. There's no way that we could believe that we're a part of this. 
unless God comes and changes our hearts. And we have to ask the very same question. Why did God choose us? Why does he say that we're also going to reign and rule with him? That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said it in 2 Timothy. The Old Testament tells us that. Why would God choose us? Out of all the billions of people that there are, that there are in the world, the gospel truth has, revealed only, has been revealed to only the ones that God chooses. And so why us? And Levis and the other apostles had to be thinking about that. And then also in this question, there's a real heart of courage that ought to be in all of us. Because if we are the ones that know... If we are such a small group that knows about the kingdom, then folks, we'd better get busy telling somebody else about it. We don't want to be the only ones that know about the kingdom. I mean, I want my mom and dad to know about it. I I want my brothers and sisters and my aunts and my uncles. I want cousins and friends. I want coworkers. Everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to know Christ is coming. They need to know there's a coming kingdom. Now, the answer to the question is a really sweet one in verse 23. And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And so Jesus says, No, you're not the only ones. The apostles aren't the only ones. There are others. There are millions of others that will come to Christ. And then the Father will come to them, And he'll sup with them, he'll be with them, he'll comfort them, he'll save them. Folks, the world is blind to the gospel right now. All all of this information that we have about the kingdom is contained right here in this book. And people don't even know it's there. They have no realization that it's here. And that's because they're in spiritual blindness. Their eyes have been covered over by this world, by their own natural condition, by their own natural birth, by even Satan who blinds them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's only one way that they'll ever realize what's written here, and that's the Holy Spirit must come to them and open up the eyes of understanding in order that they might believe. Oh, we have to ask, why us? Why did God do that for us? Why did God allow us to see this? And Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So Levius asked a pretty good question, a little bit misguided, but Jesus was there to teach them, and he gave them a great answer. We believe today because of his answer. Well, we go on to number 11. Next time we're going to spend all of our time talking about Judas Iscariot because there's a lot of information about him. But the 11th disciple in this list is a man called Simon the Canaanite, and we'll call him the converted terrorist. Now, sometimes being a terrorist is all about perspective. To the Romans, Simon was a terrorist. Now, to the Jews, he was a hero because he was trying to liberate their country. Now, I don't mean that he's like a terrorist like we think of today, not a suicide bomber. He wasn't a coward that blew up innocent people for some crazy ideology. So don't get that idea. He was Simon the Canaanite. And the name is a little bit confusing because the word Canaanite does not refer to the place that he was from. Not like he was from Canaan. That's not what this word Canaanite means. It comes from another word. And it's a word that actually means zealous for the law. 
And so he was also called Simon Zelotes because he was a member of a political party called the Zealots. He was zealous for God's law. And what it means is that, that he, was a, he was a man, this political party, that did not want Caesar to rule over Israel. In fact, didn't want anybody to rule over Israel. That's the Jews' land, so nobody's going to rule over us. I mentioned in another message that you couldn't have put Matthew and Simon the Zealot in the same room together. Not before they were saved. I mean, what would have happened there is that Simon the Zealot would have slit Matthew's throat. And that's because Matthew was a Roman collaborator. Matthew was a traitor. Matthew made his living by collecting taxes for Rome. He helped them to occupy Israel by collecting their taxes. And there was no way that Simon was going to stand for that. And the only people that he hated worse than Romans were Jews that helped the Romans. So he had no remorse for murdering a Roman. He had even less for, for cutting off the head of a, or murdering a Jew that helped Rome in any way because he saw them as traitors. Matthew was a converted traitor. And Simon was a converted zealot, what Rome called a terrorist. And so God changed their hearts. They were able to work side by side, preaching the same gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And so you can go back and you can look at Matthew chapter 8 when we studied that. And you remember the Roman centurion that came to Jesus for his help. Before Simon was saved, he never would have stood for that. No way he's going to help a Roman, not, not Gentiles. And so you can imagine how hard it must have been for him after Jesus called him to take that very same gospel and to preach to Gentile people, to preach to Romans. And this is what God has to do to a person. He has to change their heart. He has to take away those prejudices that we have so that we're willing to give the gospel to anyone. Well, the Zealots were a very interesting group. There were four major groups among the Jews in those days. Pharisees we know about. They were the right-wing fundamentalists of the the Jewish religion. Sadducees, we know about them. They're the liberals on the other side, uh, doing just about anything, compromising anything in order to gain more power. Then there's a third group. That's the Essenes. And we don't actually read about them in Scripture, but they were sort of the mystical types. They They were the purest in one sense. Uh, They went off by themselves. They hunkered down uh, with their own little corner of the truth, and they didn't have anything to do with anybody. Those are the people that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found at Qumran uh, back in the 40s. But there was this fourth group called the Zealots, and they were more of a political party. They had one interest at heart, get Rome out. Get anybody that wanted to rule Israel out. So we're talking about revolutionaries here. I mean, these are people that were very busy about, about uh, acts of sedition about Rome. They were a pain in Rome's side. In Acts chapter 5, there's a mention of a couple of these types that would burn and pillage, and they were pretty much a pain in the side of Israel or Romans all of the time. The most famous of these around the New Testament times was a man by the name of Eleazar. The activity of the zealots became such a problem that in AD 70, the Roman general Titus destroyed Jerusalem. Now, Jesus said that this would happen. He said they're going to destroy this city. He talked about the temple. He said there's not going to be one stone left standing upon another. And that's what the Romans did in AD 70. And one of the chief causes for that was because of the activity of the zealots. Rome was trying to stamp them out just to get rid of that group. And this man, Eleazar, was a particular problem. The Romans were trying to capture him and to kill him. And so his group of followers 
went and occupied a Roman fortress that was built by Herod the Great in 31 BC. This is the place that some of you may have heard of called Masada. I have a picture of that for you. Masada is down next to the Dead Sea. It's right on top of a mountaintop. Really an impressive place. There's steep drops on either side of this, 1,300 feet on one side, 300 feet on the other side. Eleazar and his group of zealots went and occupied this particular place in Israel, in Masada, and they stayed there for seven years until the Roman general Flavius Silvus came and was able to finally get them out of that place. Now, it's kind of a really an interesting thing. In the, in the second picture that I have here, you can see just a little bit of the remnants of a ramp that was built up on the 300-foot side of this mountain. And the Romans, over a period of time, built up a ramp that they could reach all the way to the top of that mountain. And they took battering rams and they went up the mountain and they beat through the walls of that city to get inside at these zealots. And when they were able to finally break through the walls... They found out that 936 inhabitants there were all dead. The men had killed their wives and their children, and then they committed suicide. That is the passion of the zealots. That's what they thought. I mean, they would rather die than to have rule, a Rome rule over them. And so you have to kind of think about that. I mean, th- this is the kind of passion that was beating in the breast of Simon. He would rather die than surrender anything to the gospel of Christ. And so there you have 1 through 11 apostles that are willing to forsake everything to follow Christ. They made their commitment. And the focus of the New Testament is not about them. The focus is on their mission, and their focus is on the Christ of that mission. The personalities didn't matter. What mattered was what Jesus told them to do. And so they were content to be just brushed out of the picture and so that the world would see only Christ. Friends, that's what we want to do here in Briam Baptist Church. This is not about me. I, I have the blessing to stand before you and to present God's word to you. God has appointed me to teach the church. And I, I appreciate that privilege so much, but it's not about me. Brother Dalton is usually here, and he stands on the platform and leads the singing. Gary is here, and he's usually doing the choir. The choir's on the platform. But there's none of us that wants that focus to be on us. We're doing what we do here for Jesus Christ and him alone. We don't want to be the focus of this ministry. We want him to shine out. And folks, I hope that's the purpose of your life, that you are here for what God has called you to do, and that is to speak the gospel of Christ and to shed the light on him, to let people know that he's the savior of the world. He's the king that's coming. And we see here God uses all kinds of people. Some of them become leaders like Peter outspoken people, people that can stand up and fearlessly preach from a pulpit. God calls those kinds of people. God calls people that do acts of kindness like John did, and he became the apostle of love. But there are also some that God calls whose names are barely mentioned. Little James, Simon Zelotes. But it doesn't matter because it's all about Christ and his kingdom. And I hope that God helps every one of us to do this well. Serve Christ in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we just thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity to present it to your people. Lord, most of all, in everything that we do, we want to lift up the name of Jesus Christ 
the one who is the Savior of this world. Lord, the message is that lost sinners can come and have their sins forgiven. Lost sinners can escape the fires of an eternal hell where every person is doomed to go unless they know him as Savior. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up someone's heart to that truth today. And then I pray for Christians here, those that already know you, that, Lord, we'd realize you've given us a job to do. We have a great responsibility to reach the world with the gospel. And, Lord, may it be in our lives. May it, may it permeate every movement of our lives. May people see Jesus in us. And Lord, help us just to give that gospel to others. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we sing today. And, Lord, speak to some heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.